Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Klickfeld. You know, the clergy at Temple Beth Am, we work very closely with each other. We collaborate all the time, but we don't necessarily share everything that the other that we do when the other ones are not present. Uh, I mean, there's just not necessarily any reason to. Like if uh, Rabbi Schatz is not at shul on Friday night when I give a drash, I don't download to her what I've said. Um, when the Shabbat bulletin went out yesterday and my source shut sheet uh, went out, for those people who are joining on Zoom, Rabbi Schatz uh, clicked on my source sheet just to see what I was teaching. And by a very weird coincidence, we not only chose the same verse from Zohar Bracha, but the same commentary by Rabbi Avadia Sforno on that verse. So who was here last week? All right, so you're going to be an expert. So Irv's going to teach this class. But it's, there, are, there are a lot of verses in the Torah and a lot of commentaries verse. And I've, I've done some different things with it, but it's very interesting that we're both drawn to the same commentary by Sforno. Um, in a short little shiur, uh, through really one verse of the Zohar HaBracha, I want to spin out um, two of the primary ways that our tradition understands what it means to be close to God. Right? Um, that's a very loaded statement because does anyone really know what it means to be close to God? You know, we, we, don't have a, we don't have a singular way of defining that, but our tradition lays out a roadmap for what it means to be able to say you're a person that God is close to. Um, and we're going to do it through a commentary by Sforno and some of the Talmudic texts that he references and then a comment by the Ramban. Uh, and I guess as we're going through this, I want you to ask yourself, which of these modes, if any, is the one that most speaks to you in terms of your Jewish life and your goal in Jewish life, which I imagine part of your goal of Jewish life is to get closer to the Holy One. Like it's, again, we've talked about this all the time. It's not just a club. So it, it might be a, uh, you know, a, a Sisyphean task in the sense that we're never all the way at the top of the mountain. But part of the reason we're doing this is because we want to have a, some kind of a relationship with a spiritual realm. Which of these two modalities most speaks to you, if either, could be none. Okay, so at the very, very end of Parshat Bezot Bracha and the end of the Torah, I think this is the anti-penultimate verse of the Torah, but maybe the penultimate. I don't remember which one. I don't know if the last verse is 11 or 12, but someone who could open the Chumash and tell me. The Torah describes Moshe in the following way. Below kam navi od Israel. No other prophet come arose in Israel, Kim Moshe, like Moses. He was unique. In what way? Asher yidao Adonai, that God yadad, I'm going to untranslate that for a second, that God yadad, panim el panim, face to face. Um, we always have the translation problem. What do we think the word yada means? No, right? Aniyodeya in modern colloquial Hebrew means I know something. Usually it has to do with a fact, right? A piece of information. What does yada mean in biblical Hebrew? What are the possibilities of what yada could mean? Know intimately, either carnally, right? Or know something not like you know that the square footage of a, of a room that's 20 by 30 is 600. That's not necessarily biblical yadia. Biblical yadia is some deep awareness of, of the other or of, of some reality. So it seems to be that we're describing here that in what made Moshe unique, what made Moshe unique was that God knew him. Really interesting. 
you might have read this verse several times before and thought what you were reading is that what made Moshe unique is that Moshe knew God. But the way the grammar works is that what made Moshe such that no other prophet would ever approach that level is that God knew him, panim el panim, face to face. Before we look at this forno, any reactions or comments to that verse, which you've heard many times in your life, but as you're reading it now, what comes up to you? Yes, Joey. I'm going to say that it, and I'll repeat what people say on the Zoom, everybody. Ah, it's the anti-penultimate verse. Thank you. Uh, any reactions to what this verse means as you're reading it? Oops. Can't lean on this. As you're reading it now? Yes, Sandra? Good. So a great question to ask on this verse is what are we supposed to do with this kind of rank anthropomorphism of describing God as having a panim? It's not the only place, of course, in Torah where the very bodiless God is described with body parts, but this is a pretty like straightforward one. I'll just pause and say this is not an answer to question, but remember that panim in Hebrew means face. It also means like the, the insides of something, right? Like it does, it, it's, it's one of the great Hebrew words that means its own antonym, right? Like kedem means before and after, kadima moving forward, kedem is as it was. Panim means the external and panima means what's on the inside. So panim al panim probably means face to face and it's almost always translated that way, but it could also have to do with like internal reality against internal reality. Sandra again and then Ben. Yes, there are other places where the Torah talks about panim al panim, and we'll get to that in some of the comments that we read. Ben. Good. So uh, what Ben is quoting is actually the, one of the verses that we read this morning in Parshat Ki Tisa, Lo panai, when God is asked by Moses, I want to see all of you, I want to see your glory, I want to be exposed to you, God says, uh, thanks, thanks, but no, right? Lo yirani hadam vachai, a person cannot see me and continue living. So lo tuchal at panai, you can't see my face. So in the moment that Moshe requests, God says no, but now <laughs> we talk about a like an Escher painting. Who's speaking this verse? Moshe, because it's Varim. So Moshe is sort of speaking this verse about him, but it's really got it's got Moshe expressing God's perspective on this relationship. And now it seems to suggest that there was a knowledge panim al panim, at least that way. At least there was panim al panim where like you could resolve that. I'm not saying it's it's a good resolution. That yes, Moshe cannot see God's face. But God saw Moshe's face, how panim panim, right face to face, so that there was an intimacy from God to Moshe. But the question is better than the answer. Anything else on the verse? Yeah, Mike, uh, Jonah. Very good. So Jonah is reminding us that in the scene when, um, when Miriam uh, speaks poorly of Moshe and then is, uh, is punished for it, God basically says to Miriam and to Aaron, like, whatever you are, you don't rise to the level of your brother. To you, I speak in chidot. In, in, in puzzles, in, in, um, in uh, riddles, but God, I speak, Rabbi Shatz, God, I, right in time for me to use the Sforno that you wrote last week. Um, God, God, Moshe, I speak face to face. So we're being reminded of that in this verse. Okay, the question that I wanna deal with is what is the content or the specificity of the uniqueness that Moshe attained with God and which of those might be a model for us. Okay, so first, the Sforno. Sforno, Italian commentary, commentator, 16th century, on the phrase, Lokam navi od bi Yisrael kamoshe, that there was no one else like Moshe. By the way, um, some of you may know that this phrase, that no one else like Moshe, um, 
became prominent again in the life of Maimonides because I believe either on his gravestone or elsewhere it says Mimosha ad Moshe lokam kuma Moshe, right? From Moses to Moses, because Maimonides' first name was Moses, Rabbi Moshe ben, ben, ben uh, Maimon. From Moses to Moses sound, sounds better in Hebrew than in English. There was no one like Moses, meaning, except your grandson, until my. The second coming of Moses was the Rambam. Humble he wasn't. By the way, apparently that was reinvigorated. What's that? Uh, and then I believe in the 19th century, I think that Moses Mendelssohn, was, no, not Moses Montefiore, the um, philanthropist said, he, he was like, Mimosha, Ad Moshe, Lokam, Kmomosha, Ad Moshe. Like, I, I, I'm the third coming. Okay. Um, Sforno. What does Sforno says it means? Lo higia shum navi lemadregat nebuoto. What does it mean? That no future prophet was able to arrive at his level of prophecy, a madregat as a level or a step. And through this verse, we can now make understand better the following thing, which is a kind of a paraphrase from the Talmud. She'ein navi rashai lechadesh devar me'ata. That no uh, um, prophet is permitted to enact anything new from this point forward, right? This is an understanding of Jewish law that valorizes the calcification of something back then, right? And by the way, every Jew does a version of it, right? So the Hasidic Jews are valorizing the dress of, of Polish noblemen in the 1700s, right? And Sforno is saying that the text is saying we valorize exactly things were when Moses lived, of course, Nothing is like the way Moses lived. And we do a version of it also. The next time you complain that someone's using a tune that's not the tune you grew up with, you're saying the exact same thing. It was supposed to stop evolving then when I was 23 years old and there should be no chidush in Judaism. The Chatam Sofer, of Moshe Sofer of Pressburg, he famously said, Ein chadash asur min He was making a pun on an agricultural rule about the new produce that can't be eaten until a certain date of the year, but he turned it into a halachic uh, cultural rule. Chadash, there are no more innovations. All the innovations that happened until Rabbi the Chatam Sofer was alive was fine, but at this point, any new innovation is reform, right? God forbid. Um, so before we finish the Sporno, turn the page and look at the Talmud that he's basing it on. So interesting, uh, worthy uh, digression. This is Masachat uh, Shabbat, page 104. Damar Rav Chizda. Rav Chizda said, Mem v'samech, that's how you write the letters, Mem and Samech. Mem v'samech shebaluchot b'neis hayu omdim. The Mem and the Samech in the actual luchot habri, what are they called? Tablets, thank you. We're standing in a miracle. Any sense what that means? They don't have legs. Say more. Correct. There's a tradition to kind of lean into the suspend disbelief that in Luchot Habrit, it wasn't like just a, a shallow carving of the letter, that the carver, the holy one with God's finger, carved all the way through the Luchot. So you can carve all the way through an olive and it'll be just fine. And you can carve all the way through a bed just fine. But you carve all the way through a mem, the center pops out, right? And you carve all the way through a samach, there's nothing holding in the O in the center of it. So Bechista says, ah, this is an easy one to resolve. It was a miracle, right? If God, if God can create the world, it's not so hard to make a samach not fall over, okay? Ela satum asao patuach ka That if one then subsequently took a closed letter, like the closed mem, 
and turned it into an open letter, then you are, you are degrading its sanctity because originally it was closed, turned open. And some say it was another rabbi. The prophets, the Talmud sometimes referred to the prophets, not as Nevi'im, but Sofim, the one who could see in the future. They established Manspach. If you haven't looked over in English, what is Manspach? What's, which are significant because of what? They are Sofites. We think of them as Sofites, right? Rabbinic uh, Judaism thought, thought of them as two different ways of writing the letter, one closed, one open. So um, the, uh, the, the mem that, is, that we know and love, the print mem, is open, because it's opening there, that'll stay in the luchot, but the final, what we think of as a final mem is closed, right? So think of all the ways in which the letters, like atzadi, like the, you take a print sadi, that's, it's not closed in the sense that it's all the way around, but it's compact. And what, what we think of as a final sadi is that it got, the leg got moved down, so opened up, right? Uh, just put the, the details of that aside. Talmud is asking a halacha question on this about the chain of authority, but Tizbra, does that make sense that the later prophets had, would have had the audacity to change something as significant as the shape of the letters, v'hakativ? But it says, Elah mitzvot, these are the commandments that uh, Moses gave to the children of Israel. No future prophet is allowed to change anything from that point forward. So without spending too much time on that, this is the Talmud basically saying, this is what the Sforna was quoting. It shouldn't have been that Isaiah or Ezekiel, any prophet changed something that Moshe did. And it shouldn't have been that the rabbis who are actually writing this material should have changed anything that Moses did. Of course, they think they are just unveiling what Moshe did, not changing it. Go back to Sforno. So the first thing Sforno was saying is that what does it mean to say that Moshe was unique? He was unique and that he was the last one to innovate. Moshe was the last conservative Jew. Al-Derech Omram, and this is also similar to what they said, they meaning the rabbis of the Talmud, Eind Beidin Yecholavatel Divrei Beidin, one court cannot nullify the words of another court, Beidin Chaviro, its fellow court, Ela Imkain, unless Gadol unless the second court is bigger than it, Bechochmah, in wisdom and in size, to suggest that if there's a ruling that a group of rabbis make, it stands for all time unless another court can come along, which is greater in number, that gets to be a very large number, and greater in wisdom, who gets to decide, right? This is a classic question in Jewish law. Do today's rabbis properly arrogate to themselves the right to say that we are the inheritors of a tradition that is constantly evolving and therefore we ought to evolve too? Or are we inheritors of a Spornoistic tradition that says, stop, you're gonna say you know more than Maimonides? You knew more than Rabbi Akiva? That's the, that's the apex of hubris. And that goes back all the way to Moshe. So if you could um, size up Sforno's understanding of, of what it meant that Moshe, that, to say that Moshe was unique and Moshe was special, uh, what, what, how would you put it in a sentence? What's, what, what is the value of this uniqueness? He's closest to God. And the reason why it's significant is for legal authority, right? This is not... Um, a pastoral emotional text. This is a legal text. This is saying, in what way does, 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 does the Zodabracha mean 
There will never be a greater legal authority than Moshe. And all of you people who think that you know something, you're not schleppers, you know nothing, which means tread very, very carefully on the tradition or with the tradition, because when you, when you do it with a little bit too much chutzpah, you are undermining this verse from Parshat Varim, right? Now, again, what, what's, what's internally contradictory about this is the rabbinic uh, culture that is writing this material is the very culture that took apart all sorts of things and expanded all sorts of things and innovated all sorts of things. And that is an internal and uh, unresolvable debate within Jewish, within rabbinic practice. Uh, Alan, question, I'm just gonna get some more water while you're asking the question. Yeah. So what Alan's saying is there's something internally um, reinforcing about this, that the rabbis, the rabbis of any generation that say, remember, we're not supposed to innovate are actually protecting their individual rulings, right? Stevie? Maybe the first... What Stevie's saying is, he reads it a little bit differently, I'm just repeating it for people on Zoom, that, that maybe what the Sforno was saying is that you can't, don't, don't bring a verse from Isaiah or Mishlei to override a verse from Torah. Maybe the first thing that Sforno says, but the Ein Beidin Yacholavatel Divrei Beidin, that's basically saying, like, be very, very careful when you claim that you have the authority to overrule something that came before you. Okay, because I want to do the part two, and we're running out of time, let's go to... Um, Oh yeah, so I, I brought you the, I was going to bring you the text from Masech uh, and Megillah, which is where we get this notion that one Beidin cannot uproot the uh, precedence of a previ previous Beidin unless they're bigger than in number and wisdom. You can look at that at your own, but I want to make sure we get to the Ramban because that's the counterpoint. Okay, Ramban, Spanish commentator, lived uh, in the 13th century, so um, 200 years or so before the Sforno. So this, this idea precedes the one that we just uh, read, but I wanted to bring the Sforno one first. It makes sense. We're on the third page of the document. You got two people who see one another, borrowing the phrase from a verse. They get to know each other. If you, if you go up really close and you stare at someone, or you, the panim panim from the perspective of seeing someone's internal self, you're going to be known to the other. Amar, when the verse said, Yida'o Adonai Panim al Panim, that God knew him face to face. And remember what we discussed, what does the verse not say took place? That who didn't know whom? Did not say that Moshe knew God face to face. The Ramban picks up on that and says, Kilo Hazkir, the text did not want to mention, Shi Yada'o Moshe came, that Moses knew God that way, Lichvod Shalmale. It would almost be like a diminution of God to suggest. That, that God, that Moshe knew God as well as God knew Moshe, going back to something that Ben said before, right? In fact, Moshe asked for that permission and God said no. So the first thing the Ramban deals with is that it seemed to be one-sided, and it's almost as if the Ramban is saying what it meant was that they knew each other, panim panim, but the Torah didn't want to mention it because that would be a, a, a dishonor to God. Be al titma, don't be so surprised, Bamesha amar b'shevech Moshe, about that which it said, uh, in praise of Moshe, Asher Yida'o Adonai Panim Panim. Don't be surprised that it described Moshe as being known by God face to face. Ve'amar, and it says elsewhere in the book of Exodus. Sorry, Zoomers, we have a loud helicopter or something. Sounds like a plane. Plane. V'dibar Adonai Moshe Panim Panim, that it says in the very verses that we uh, from Parshat Kiti, so we actually didn't read those verses today, but it's in that section, that God spoke to Moses Panim Panim. 
and and the al tithma don't be surprised he hasn't resolved that phrase yet don't be surprised that even though it said more than once regarding moshe that he was new god panim panim uvachol yisrael and regarding all of the jewish people nemar gamkein it also says regarding israel that god spoke to them panim panim where panim el panim befanim deber hashem imachem in the fifth chapter of Darim, it says that God spoke to all of you, plural Israel, face to face. Don't be surprised. And the, what he means by don't be surprised is if the verse that we're dealing with is, is showing Moshe's uniqueness, then don't be so surprised that it also describes the all of Israel, all of Israel being able to speak to God face to face. Why should you not be surprised? Kisham be'er mitocha eish. In the moments that all of Israel spoke to God face to face, it was mitocha eish. It was out of the fire. It was mediated. They were close. They got pretty darn close. But there was some other medium that was getting in the way. Lamar to say, sheshamu kolo, they heard God's voice, mitocha eish, from the fire, bilvad, velo ra'u ha-panim. They didn't see God's face, right? So even though it says panim al-panim, he's resolving it. There what it means is they got pretty close, but not like Moshe. Bial derech ha-emet, when the Ramban quotes Derech Ahmed, he's referring to Kabbalah. Interesting. Uh, it doesn't mean, he's not just saying colloquially and, and truly, he's, that's his way of dipping into Kabbalistic sources. And by way of the truth, Hashem Panim Al Panim, in what way did God know Moshe face to face? Live Dov Kabo, to embrace him, to cling to him, to be close to him. What does it mean to be known by God face to face that any time Moshe said, I want to conjure God right in front of me to have an intimate conversation, poof, God was there. God could be beckoned by Moshe, beckoned for a moment of spiritual, I don't know, revelation. That indeed was the case at the time of the giving of Torah for all of Israel, but in that situation, the rest of the people only uh, achieved what God was all about through the voice coming from the fire. But any time that Moshe wanted to be in a prophetic moment, it was like the giving of the Torah. What was special about Moshe? Very different than Sforno. Not that Moshe could proclaim a law and it would stand forever and you would like... Um, you would shudder at the possibility of possibly innovating it. What was unique about Moshe? Every time Moshe davened, as it were, it was like Sinai. Every time Moshe wanted to be in the presence of God, God's presence descended upon the mountain, and it was like revelation again. The Sha'ar Nevi'im, the other prophets, they're pretty good. yad Hashem For the other prophets had, had maybe the hand of God uh, on them, meaning they, they had some kind of a positive thing, but not like Moshe. Two very different modalities understanding Moshe's uniqueness. On the one hand, he's the lawgiver, and don't you dare abrogate it. And when you are a rabbi, you're a beitin, you are inheritors of a tradition that has been very delicately and responsibly passing down Jewish practice. And that's a big thing, because if we didn't do it delicately and carefully, then our Jewish practice today would have nothing in common with Jewish practice 500 years ago. So you know, as a traditional conservative community, we hold on to that with some reverence, just not with utter reverence. And the Ramban saying, no, you get it all wrong. This is not have, this have to do with legal authority. This is not about the transmission of practices. This has to do with spiritual intimacy, right? And trying to, trying to, uh, show that the ideal 
in Moshe is not that he was a powerful lawgiver, but that he could summon God when he wanted to summon God. That is a spiritual uniqueness as opposed to a legalistic one. Irv? Right. Just in terms of the narrative, Moshe has an experience with God according to the Torah that no one else has. But the question is, what is Moshe's legacy as unique and which of those do we want to hold up as a model? And maybe it's both. Maybe we want to hold up as a model the notion of being able to um, help define Jewish practice for generations to come, holding on to Moshe's coattails and hoping that those who come after us will not do such damage and change to it. That's one way of preserving Judaism. What's another way of preserving Judaism? Raising children who believe in the, that when they stand to pray, something's happening. That when they say Baruch Atah Hashem, it's, it may not be a magical incantation, but it's not a nothing. And they can kind of aspire to a, mosh, a, a mosaic uh, spiritual presence where no matter where they are, Mount Sinai is within reach. Right? So we're about to dive in Mar, Are we going to feel it perfunctorily? Or might we try to step into the uh, shoes of, of Moses the way the Ramban defines him and says, maybe God is present and we can beckon God as well. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.